Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Yay! So we are starting season three. Welcome back to you all. So today's episode, I decided to start off with a bang and I am chatting with the one, the only Joe Wadsack. And oh my gosh, I don't think I've had to edit a podcast so much. One day I shall release the unedited version, which literally was about an hour and a half. Joe can talk. Joe has potentially more wine stories more stories full stop than anybody I have ever met in my life. That's probably why he has been awarded two times the IWSC Communicator of the Year Award. And many of you may have seen him on TV shows like Great Food Live, Saturday Kitchen, La Dette to Lady, Richard and Judy. Right now, he is the new wine expert on This Morning. So, on today's episode... The first half is Joe just telling us some of the most interesting stories, specific wines that changed his world and forced him into the wine industry. His experiences in Bordeaux, very interesting story with a doily and a bowl of bread. And he's going to talk about one of the most expensive cocktails in the world, and the recipe, should you be interested, using some of the most expensive, most premium wines in the world. It's all very, very interesting. And then, of course, we're going to get on to the wine education point. And we are going to Madeira, the land of the fortified wines. So pour yourself a glass of wine and let's go over to the chat now. Okay, Joe, I am very, very excited to chat with you and see if you're going to behave. Do you promise to behave on this recording? I want you to say at the beginning. Janina, I cross my heart, I promise to behave on this recording. I can't believe you've crossed your heart. All right, everyone, are we ready? So, right, okay, you're... CV is explosive. It's ridiculously too big for me to even cover, but I want to take it back. Just well, a little well, I'm bit. old now. Well, <laughs> older. I want to take it back to the beginning, right? I want you to tell me what was it that started the wine fascination? Now, is this mm-hmm. drinking that glass of reasoning with your dad? Or was it, <laughs> I was reading the bio you sent me, the yeah, 1982 yeah, yeah. Jadot Chamboul Missoni, when you were... They kind of both had a really big impact on my life. Okay. Um, one in a very much more subtle way, and that was being aware that wine was around. Because I think, you know, I was born in 1970, mm-hmm. and, you know, if we're talking about the first time I drank a, a sip to glass of wine with my dad, I was probably knowledgeably drinking it and thinking how delicious it was. And I was seven. Seven. Now that oh, yeah. yeah now, 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 now before you decide to arrest my father, <laughs> a he passed away. B, Too late. B, 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 I, th- I think we're I think we're past the statute of limitations. And, and C, um, you are allowed to, to give your child drink mm-hmm. in the confiser household if they're five or older. Oh. Um, so what used to happen was I used to worship my dad. He was this this whirlwind of a man, mm. German from Hanover, strong accent. 
both menacing and kind of animal charm at the same time. <laughs> um, he used to work at this fantastic hotel called the Tooting Glen Hotel. And, and, oh, um, Shooting Glen! He used to live around the corner. Yeah, so my dad was head chef at the Tooting Glen for, for seven years. And um, my, uh, I remember him coming back on Sundays where he would come back a little bit earlier than usual and he would smell of Michelin-starred kitchen. He would, There's a what? smell that... <laughs> If you've ever dated a chef or you've ever been around chefs a lot, there is a smell okay. that only only comes from leaning over game stocks and cooking lobster bisque and things like that. So mm. the chef whites are impregnated with this weird smell, which is both luxurious and a bit kind of funky. <laughs> My dad used to come in mm-hmm. and go, shush everyone, I'm putting the television on. And so this meant that Liverpool were being shown on TV live on the big match on ITV. Oh, good. He's a Liverpool fan, is he? The big match. He Same as my dad. Fan. And he was Good a Liverpool fan. There you go. And and me. And well me till I die. And my brother. Okay. And uh, dad, dad would come in and he'd get home just in time for kickoff mm-hmm. on the big match on TV. So he wouldn't have time to take off his, his chef's wife. Anyway, so we're, he's lying on, on the floor watching Liverpool. And then mum would come in with a little tray. <laughs> and on the tray was a bowl which had cubes of Edam in it or Gouda or some kind of slightly matured hard uh-huh. cheese. But something decent. And then there was another bowl, which was just full of radishes and a little bit of celery salt on the side. And there would be one of those traditional old German glasses, you know, the bohemian green, green oh, stems, yeah, uh-huh. wine uh-huh. glass, yeah. and a bottle of German Riesling. Mm. And my dad had a real passion for, for certain wines. And one of the things he loved to drink in front of the football, rather than drinking a pint of he would drink Riesling. And he would, he would I remember, always drink a 71 or a 76 Rheingau Auslet, oh my gosh. which is... Pretty, fa- yeah. pretty fancy Riesling mm-hmm. by anyone's standards. And so there's a bottle of Schloss Vorarts, Kielischer Grafenberg 76 Auslaser, which pr- probably would have cost him all of well, £1.80. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, and now that wine is probably worth £400. And it's like, but the Riesling was just, just so cheap. Mm. And even, you know, single estate Rieslings. So that's what Dad would drink. And he, when everyone was going, oh, you don't still drink German wine, you know, Peace Pour and, and Liebfrau Milch, that, you know, th- those days are over. Dad was thinking, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. These wines are some of the best in the world. And Dad knew that. Yeah. So I'm sitting there and he said, if you promise to be quiet, you can sit down and lie down in front of the telly and watch the football with me. And we weren't allowed to say a word. Oh, my God. If we said something, Dad would say, out. I'm trying to watch the football. Shush. Yachim. That's my full name. <laughs> Yachim. And my, brother, my brother's called Carl Magnus. Yachim, Carl Magnus. <laughs> and then if we're really good, he'd pass us a piece of Gouda and then let us sip his Riesling. Mm. And it's like, that moment was a moment where, as far as a six or seven-year-old child can feel psychedelia and kind of <laughs> having your mind freed and this kaleidoscope of flavors of honeysuckle and lime yeah. and lemon and and then the savory of the cheese i'm like transported into the universe going now i know why dad's a chef mm-hmm. i get the it now. Yeah. it's suddenly i was suddenly for the first time in my life in my very young life i was using that other sense which has incredible resolution and can create incredible pleasure for you and that was the first time i remember eating or tasting anything and going wow Mm. and that was six or seven and then obviously we move ahead a little bit (laughs) yeah my mum and dad mum and dad bought a gastro pub uh, in the new forest it's still there it's just been sold again since uh, my parents moved to sweden and it's uh, called the three lions and it's in near a place called fording bridge on the edge of the new forest in hampshire and it had a really great reputation and um i in the summer used to make a few quid by doing the pot wash <laughs> or maybe even working behind the bar even when i was 17 and, and my interest in wine which started while i was washing the pots 
translated into me being the nerd that I am and encyclopedically absorbing the entire wine list, learning everything about every single wine on the list. And then, then when mum on a Saturday night, when we had 95 customers in, I could send me to the table to take someone's wine order and then say, what do you think we should recommend? And there's this 18-year-old kid talking about the merits of Santa Steph versus Saint Julien. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. But that was my hobby. Wow. Right? And, and, and mum and dad let me drink wine for age of 16. So I, I, was, I think I, could have cons- I would have considered myself, by comparison to other bar staff, a wine expert when I was 17. I really was. That's amazing. And then, and then you'd go back to your pot wash and carry on washing up dishes. Yeah, I'd go to the pot wash and carry on. Exactly. And so I'm in the pot wash and mum and dad... Whenever a very nice bottle of wine was served, especially one which had some sediment and some age, mum would take a coffee filter and a regular gravity coffee, you know, one of those V-shaped coffee mm-hmm. filter things, put it put it over a jug and then pour the dregs through. So there was like maybe 50 mils left in the bottle and then she'd let the staff try it so they knew what the wine tasted like on this. Mm. And I remember mum often going, would, yeah, yeah, would you like to try this wine? This might this might turn you off real ale, which is what I was drinking at the time. You might become a winehead if you try this. And I'll go and say, okay, mum, I'm busy, I'm hot. And st- the last thing I need is a glass of red wine now. I'm in front of the Hobart, there's steam going everywhere, I'm washing pots and pans. And then there was this smell. My mum went back in through the, sort of like the outdoor, because yeah. we, we had one of those situations where there was an indoor and outdoor, so they didn't hit into each other. And, um, and I, just, I remember thinking, God, what's that smell? That's amazing. And it smelled like like a punnet of wild strawberries. No, it was, it was like that clearly, huh? Yeah, it was just so mouth-watering. It was hard to describe. And I leaned over and I thought, oh, my God, that's that wine. So then I poured myself a little glass because I was in the pot wash. I did the glass washing mm-hmm. as well. So I had all the crystal glasses up there. And I poured myself a little into a bit of Pinot Noir glass and smelt it. And that was it. I think Pinot Noir, for many people in this industry... Is, is the, the grape <laughs> that changes it's everything. The grape, isn't it? it's, it's the grape that you admire least often, I think. But when you have those moments where it's great, you yeah. go, oh, just don't let this bottle end, because I know when I finish this, it's going to be two years before I find another burgundy I like this <laughs> much. Right? And, and you know it's a waiting game. You could taste 50 and only find one that's any good. And it doesn't matter how much you pay for mm. it. I mean, even now, you've got these incredible vintages and, and burgundy and red wines are going for telephone numbers. I mean, red wines which... I think that I was used to paying for 25, 30 pounds only 10 years ago, are genuinely 80 to 120 pounds. I mean, it's, it's insane. New Saint George yeah, is 100 pounds. It's crazy, it right? So, so what, so what, what it breaks my heart because people listen to this podcast who want to know why people pay that money for Burgundy. It's the reason why they used to pay that money for Burgundy is because of the, the experiences that you, Janine, and I have had. Mm. A moment of epiphany yeah. when you drink a wine and it, it's, it, it confuses and fills the senses. <laughs> it's almost full, fills the void in your mouth. Yeah. It almost comes out of your tear ducts and it has a, <laughs> and it's a palate that's so soft. It's like a duvet in the mouth. It's like you're having this nebulous, unbelievably silky, amorphous kind of <laughs> moment. And it's everything's just like, oh God, that's amazing. It's just so silky. And it makes your shoulders drop and you let out a slightly woofy sigh. <laughs> And it's like, and you have that moment. And, and those are the moments we live for in this industry. Now, I'd wish, I'd love to say, Janina, that the people listening will go away and say, that's why Pinot Noir is special, because it can do that. But sadly, the reason why Pinot Noir is expensive is because you can trade it to other people. Yeah. And it sits in somebody's cellar as well half the time. Yeah. And it doesn't get drunk. And no one, no one buys, no one buys Burgundy unless you're a restaurant sommelier to drink. They're buying it to sell to someone else and I think that's just I think there should be some law that stops shit like that happening but sadly I just think that I didn't taste that many great burgundies in my life but I do remember the ones I've had and I just fear that the next person that comes along that that was as passionate as I was when I was 18 about wine and wants to learn it all 
it's going to be very hard for him to even get close to trying those yeah. ones. And I totally agree. And funny enough, it was a shamble Moussini for you. I remember it was Domaine yeah. Comte Georges de Vogue Moussini for me. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, oh, my God. <laughs> Calm down. That was, that, that was, abs- <laughs> that was absolutely my mother's favourite wine. Mm. It's crazy. No. <laughs> so obviously, I can. I think everyone's figured out why you got into the wine industry. You took yourself then off to Bordeaux to learn yeah. about wine, right? I did. Um, when I went to Bordeaux, I was offered a job in a restaurant. I thought, if I get a job at a restaurant, maybe I can get a job in a winery. And it was at the beginning of the 90s, which was um, sort of like a kind of cliff fall recession. Not as bad as the one we're in now, but it felt pretty nasty at the time. Mm. And 1991, everything went sour. It was still francs, not euros then. Yeah. There were six francs a pound, which was nothing. I mean, it used to be 10 or 11, but it was like, so, so the English currency was very weak. And I got a job working in a hotel as a barman with a couple of people that were desperate to get a Michelin star mm-hmm. in a lovely hotel restaurant just south of Bordeaux in a place called Long Grand um, sort of like opposite Pesec Leonion, but it's on, it was on, mm-hmm. the, it was on the, the Garonne. The one thing that I discovered, I think what surprised me, having spent some time there now and having actually spent a year and a half, two years living there in Bordeaux, is the place where all the cool wine comes from are the most boring bits. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the nicest bits are the city. If you if you just park wine just for a moment and go to the city itself and look at everything else that's not to do with wine, it's a very cool city. And mm-hmm. um, if you go to you know you look at the Roman ruins and things like that. And if you go to Entre de Mer, the area between the Dordogne that goes out to the east and the Garonne that heads south, mm-hmm. there's this giant forest full of castles with with like moats and drawbridges, oh, and you don't see that in the Medoc. In the Medoc, just you know, it's just a flat piece of land. That side, it's just yeah, it's vineyards and chateaus. But then remember. In the past, it used to be swamps, you know, and it was the Dutch yeah, that kind of yeah. cleared it all out. So this wasn't a place that, that had it. beautiful forests or lands, and I guess that no, is that no. is why. You didn't work for a winery in the end. You actually got a degree, didn't you? Yeah, so what happened was I did this in a sequence. So I, I did a postgraduate wine diploma there. Mm. Um, and what I did was, which was a one-year course, but what I did was I started working at this hotel. So what happened was um, this guy came in one day, and his name, as I discovered, was Viscount Loic de Hoppefee. Now, Viscount Lo de Roquefort came from a very, very old Breton family. And as you can hear in the word Roquefort, (laughs) that means stone leaf, that's the same family as the Rockefellers in America. Ah. So the Rockefellers became... Yeah, yeah, they can can chart their family all the way back to the 12th century in Brittany. Loic de Roquefort was an incredibly, incredibly charming aristocratic gentleman and very entertaining. And they came in from from the opera in in Bordeaux. And for those people that have not experienced the new Bordeaux that, since since it was all washed and cleaned, the opera in Bordeaux is a carbon copy of the Opera Garnier in Paris. Okay, it is a piece of unbelievable architecture in its own right. If you knew what it was for, it also has incredible acoustics. It's majestic inside, but the actual architecture in of itself is one of the finest pieces of what we call housemanization in France. And they came in and they pulled up in his very fancy Mercedes, came in through the door and said, uh, Mr. Joe, um, look, we're very, very, very hungry. Is, 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 is there any kitchen staff here? I said, there isn't. No, oh, we missed everything. <laughs> so there was no other restaurants. They confused our booking in Bordeaux. I was supposed to go to such and such a restaurant. My wife is really quite upset. And I went, I'm sure there's something I can do for you. And I was thinking, what would my bosses do if Loic came in through the door now? 
And I was thinking, I'm going to do, I'm going to step up. I'm going to do what they do. And hopefully I'll get this fantastic comment back from Loic saying what brilliant hospitality I was offering. So I went into the kitchen, fired up the ovens, found some beautiful part-baked rolls, uh-huh. found a side of smoked salmon, put a few caper berries on the side, slice of lemon, dressed it on the plate very nicely. And then I brought it out this big tray of perfectly cut smoked salmon. And the guys went, you look, that you've done that before. I said, well, mum's Swedish. We, mm-hmm. we really, I've been eating slicing salmon since I was six. And they said, this is fabulous. Thank you so much. I said, oh, I've got some rolls in the oven. So I went out and I just got an oven glove, just took the, the metal tray out of the, of the convector oven and shut it. I said, mind these, these are very hot. And I just passed them around to people while they sort of like kind of devoured this plate of salmon with their fingers and a fork and the hot bread. And you can see they were having a really great time of it and going, wow, this is really cool. It feels like we're being naughty. Anyway, I thought, well, there you go. That's, that should secure my, my tenure at this restaurant for a few more weeks. I get called down to the office. I said, um, Joe, Joe, come down here. We need to have a chat. I said, oh, that's my boss. So I went down to see, see Madame Ersa. I walked into her office. She just looked at me like, like, like I kicked her in the face or something. <laughs> I said, what's the matter? I said, we just had a, a phone call from, from Loic. I said, yes. I said, they just want to say how fantastic it was and how well you looked after them yesterday in our absence and that there was nowhere else to get any food and he did something. He said that it was okay to pay later. He didn't know how much to charge for it. And then he provided them some food. And you went to the oven and took out the oven tray with the rolls on, which they thought was perfectly hilarious. <laughs> and they were eating it with their fingers. And I said, yeah, get your shit and go. You're fired. Oh, my God. And I said, why? I said, you might have just lost us a Michelin star. If that wasn't put on a doily in a bowl, then we would have lost a Michelin star if the inspector was in that night. And they fired me because I handed this bowl to Loic without putting it on a tray with a doily. And that was the reason why they fired me. Not, not that I kept the richest local, their, their most loyal customer happy. That wasn't, they didn't, they didn't care about that. It was just the perception and the presentation wasn't right. Wow. But then Loic said, have you just been fired? Do you want a job? I said, I'm desperate for a job. I know I'm not going to get paid anything because everyone's getting fired. 1991 is one of them was shaping up to be one of the catas- most catastrophic vintages, as you probably know, mm-hmm. uh, since since the early 30s in Bordeaux. It was one of the worst vintages. Had everything went wrong in 1991. And um, no, he said, look, I can't pay you, but if you can find me an au pair, and that was my then girlfriend, who I then married subsequently, who was on holiday in Crete after finishing her finals. I ran up and said, you've got, to get, you've got to get your ass over here to France so I can get a job, but you're going to be an au pair for the next eight months. And Emma, I said, yep. And so, so she came over. She became the au pair. I became his assistant to Shay. It was only then that he realised that I had a chemistry degree. He just thought I was just coming in from scratch. Mm-hmm. And he suddenly realised realized I was teaching her about chemistry. And I was, I was saying, why are you paying for those lab things to go off to that place? That's a, that is a titratable chemical experiment that costs 50 pence to do yourself. And you're being paid five pounds each time. I said, really? Uh, I said, yeah, tomorrow. I'll so I built a lab in his shay and I did all the, all the analyses myself mm-hmm. and saved him a, a fortune. Did I see any of that money? For that bollocks? Anyway, <laughs> um, but I remember in our first year, we made a, I made a wine from a very small parcel of 130-year-old Semillon vines, mm. which had been aged for three months in new Spanish oak. Strangely, Spanish, because okay. we couldn't. The, the recession was so bad, we couldn't afford new French oak. So no, we bought American okay. from a tonnery in, in Rioja called Madero. Okay. And uh, it was good American oak, but what we, we said was that we mustn't overrate the wine. But we basically did a lot of lee stirring. This was an incredible concentration of Semillon. It was called Cuve 23 or, or Tank 23 mm. when we finished with it. And we submitted it to the Guide Hachette 
um, for its analysis, and it won three stars and a coup de coeur, which was a slightly higher rating than, than Chateau Domaine de Chevalier got that year. Oh, my God. Um, okay. But there was only enough wine. There was like two barrels. There was enough wine to make about um, 150 cases, 150 dozen. Yeah. A company in, in the UK actually bought it. I can't remember who it was. But somebody actually gave me a bottle for uh, my uh, 50th birthday three years ago. Oh, that's amazing. And like, I drank I it. And that's a, that was a, a semillon from Entre de Mer in 1991, one of the worst things of all time. And it's still holding up strong, right? So I can't tell how delicious that wine was. Um, I, I Slightly less successful my second wine, but we won't, we won't go into that. <laughs> <laughs> Always just talk about the best stuff. So then after that, you just decided, I need to get a winemaking degree. I just thought, right, I need, I need to get more knowledge. Yeah. I need to get enough knowledge. And I was always in the mind's eye. What, what I thought would be the dream job was I was thinking I would love to run an odd bins or I'd love to be a buyer for a company like that because mm. my idea was this is a ticket to travel around the world, right? Mm. Well, and yeah. The sad thing about this country is we have this incredibly flat pyramid. You know, you've got like 80% of all wine being sold in supermarkets. You've got, like, like the world, there was 280 odd bins, there was 600 bottoms up, there was 250 Majestics, and everyone's trying to get those four buyer's jobs at head office. Mm. And when you look at the four buyer's jobs at Majestic, plus what was then Summerfield, Safeway, Tesco, Asda, you know, and you put them together. There are 35 people that decide what everyone drinks in the country. That's quite shocking, isn't and it? The, oh. it's, it is shocking. It is shocking and because it comes down to ultimately them being profit-minded. So it's only then when I looked, when I stood, stood back, when I stopped being a supermarket buyer and I stood back as a journalist and saw how supermarkets worked, I thought, we are actively stopping the world from drinking probably 60% of the world's most interesting wines because there's just no money in it. Mm, yeah. And, and I'm just thinking, I'm going to be an apologist. I'm going to devote the rest of my life, having been a wine buyer, to getting people to try the obscure and to get and to swim upstream a little bit and try stuff that maybe is outside their comfort zone. Because the people who make those wines struggle day in, day out and produce beautiful things. And it's the big companies that don't struggle at all that make tons of money. And it, that just doesn't seem right to me. Yeah, I love it. But then actually, recently, you've been writing, haven't you, for the Class yeah. magazine. And I think you said to me, yeah. what, the latest article, you're talking about mixing yeah. wines with cocktails, like actually trying yeah. to bring people different experiences, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's something that we all abhor. You know, if you put two cubes of ice into a glass of wine, the whole room, you hear a palpable, but if you go back to 1850, in every bar in London, every bar in Paris, every bar in New York, they were mixing Sauterne with Claret and Vermouth. And oh my every, God. Before, cocktails only existed from really realistically from about the 1911s. Yeah. The first cocktail of re- that you can really call a cocktail that changed the kind of the scenery would probably be the Bloody Mary or then the Martini. Things like the old fashions. People were putting stuff in drinks all the time anyway. So so um, it's not technically a cocktail if you mix vermouth with wine. Yeah. Because there's no spirits. Mm. But let's call it for sake of all, let's call it cocktails. Um, there's a drink that uh, a dear friend of mine, his name's Stuart Hudson, was sort of brand advocate and used to look after sales of Martel in the UK and was also a top sommelier in restaurants around London. And um, he recently had a, a pop-up called Bar Lieber in Islington. He replicated a very famous cocktail from a very famous book, a book that everyone, I can't remember the name of the surname of the guy, but it, it was a book written in the 1850s and it was the Bible. Um, in it is a drink called the Imperial Punch, the Empire Punch. Okay. And he made it for the opening of his bar. This was last year. And I'll tell you what goes into the Empire Punch. What? Right. It's a, 
half a bottle of Hennessy Paradis, okay. which is a 1,500 pound mm-hmm. cognac, a half a litre of 25-year-old rum, which was worth about 600 pounds. We've got a 25-year-old Appleton, which we poured into it, into a big, big stock pot, mm-hmm. basically. This is, these are the ingredients. Then we put in four bottles of Chateau Lafitte. Oh, my God. Right? So four bottles of 2008 Chateau Lafitte went into the pot. Then three bottles of Cercial Madeira, at least 30 years old. So we used three bottles of Cercial 1980, put them in there. Two bottles of Tokai Azsu 6 Petunyosh, which went in there. Then you stir it together with ice, yeah. fresh pineapple juice and fresh strawberry juice. Oh, that's insane. Then you put it in the fridge to marry for about two hours and then you batch it into glasses and, and it's put, poured into, into a Collins glass and then the final top is added to it, which is a float of Dom Perignon. <laughs> Just to bring it all together. And that's the ingredients of one drink. Wow. And not breaking even, he charged £100 a drink. Um, wow. It's nearly the best thing I've ever drunk in my life. It's not maybe the wow. best thing, but it was cer- it's certainly top 10 drinks of all time. And I was sitting there with Sly Augustine, who owns Trailer Happiness, yeah. which is a rum bar in Notting Hill, and he's, he's very, very well known in the community and one of the best-known bartenders in the country. And um, I said, what do you do after that? Once you've had a glass of this, what happens? And he Sly said, there's nowhere to go from this. You have to go home. <laughs> you have to go home. Put... You have, to, you have to put the kettle on and have a cup of tea because after this, nothing's going to taste right. Yeah. Honestly, um, um, I would have loved to try it. I feel like I might be a bit of a snob, though. I'm kind of like, don't yeah. mix my wines. But I like the fact that I totally agree that you can put them in cocktails. And I'm going to use this as a yeah. great opportunity to segue us to Madeira because you oh, mentioned cool. the Circio that was in that cocktail. Yeah, absolutely. You've been absolutely. to Madeira. Finally, yeah, last year, it was my absolute, well, I think it might even be number one on my bucket list was to go well, to Madeira. it's so beautiful. Um, I haven't been, but it's yeah. so green uh, and pretty. Oh, I can't tell you. And, and Janina, it has such an amazing soul as, a, as, a, as an island yeah. as well. I think because you're so far away from everywhere yes. else. Because you're quite a long way I mean, the closest things yeah, to you. You're closer to Africa than you are actually to Portugal. It's yeah, like 400 yeah. miles. That's it. You're, you're off the coast of Morocco. Yeah. You're about 350 miles north of Gran Canaria, which is off the coast of the Western Sahara. Mm-hmm. And the closest island group to you is possibly the Azores, actually. Yes, yeah. But, um, but, but, you're, but, but you're forgetting that you are on a uh, noble headland of Portugal. It's where Ronaldo was born. And, um, and, and everywhere, the whole of the island is pretty much devoted to him. It's there. <laughs> you see his name everywhere. And you, you, just see, you just see CR7 scratched into everything on every wall. Oh, um, and he has, has this incredible, gorgeous modern hotel on the uh, sort of like cruise terminal waterfront yeah. on the millionaire front. Um, so, so what can I say about Madeira? Madeira, um, first of all, the place. Paint us a picture. It is, um, yes. Yeah, it, 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 it kind of it needs to be painted almost. You need to see with your own eyes. Mm what those terraces with those vines look like and what the, 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 the island people I think because Madeira is associated with this famous old fortified drink yeah. I think people think the whole island is devoted to the, the, that purpose but there's virtually no vineyards left there are virtually none um, the, the biggest crops in the island by miles are sugar cane and bananas and it, it is a, it is an absolute garden of Eden for things like tangerines mm. for uh, citrus fruits in general uh they're famously the bananas are something else i mean i love a really nice banana but they taste so delicious oh my god i really want to go 
and I suppose the reason maybe as well is how fertile the soils are, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a very young volcanic um, sort of promontory which came out of the Atlantic not that long ago in ge- geological terms. So there's no beaches. This is still because beaches come from millions of years of boulders mm. and, and volcanic rock being eroded yeah. down into smaller and smaller grains of sand, right? So when you go to Tenerife and the soil, the soil is black, that's what beaches look like if it started off as a volcano, mm. right? So one day, in maybe 200 million years' time, Madeira will have beaches like that. But at the moment, it's just rocks that are sharp enough to cut right through your timberlands. I mean, it's just very sharp. Ignition. Well, apparently as well, the reason it got its name Madeira was when the Portuguese came, they set fire to the forests, of which, because there's loads and loads of trees, yeah. and then it, it burnt for years. And then the ash yes, went did. into the soil, which made the soils even more fertile as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's a very cool story. And um, they have some very, very cool uh, rules about their food. They're very, very proud about their fish, for example. Mm -hmm. There is an exclusion zone about 250 miles around the island where you cannot catch any fish. I think I'm right in saying this. You can't catch any fish within 250 miles of the island of Madeira under power. So if you're going to use a net... You have to be in a sailboat. Oh. If you are using under power, you have to catch you have to catch all the fish by rod. Wow. So the fishes are ca- the fishes are caught one after the other, not in a massive haul. So that ultra sustainable wow, okay. and very very deep sea Atlantic fishing. So it's marlins and 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 uh, dagger fish and um, all sorts of extraordinary like um, sharks and the fish. They also they, one of the things that you, you you don't see in other islands is you know you know. Um, you, Every, every, some countries have quite obscure, weird sort of shellfish. You might have a plate full of um, sort of certain clam, certain clams that are only from one coast in Spain or something. But here, you know, the good old-fashioned star limpet, the green limpet, mm. they eat those. Okay. And they, they, what they do is they take, they, they, they prise them off the rocks, they wash them, put them into a frying pan, douse it in lemon juice, olive oil, and garlic, and they just put it into a furnace oven, <laughs> and they all pop and they crackle, and you take them out and you eat them just out of the half shell. Wow. Um, and I've never, I've never, I've never eaten limpets before, but my God, I am crazy about seafood. They're absolutely delicious. Now that would pair beautifully with a Cerciel. So for anyone who doesn't realise, when we say this, we're talking about, I think that's yeah, true. we're talking about the grape variety. So the grape variety is Cerciel. Yes. Um, and obviously yeah. the majority of the wines in Madeira are fortified. Yeah. There is a little bit of table yeah. wine these days. Um, maybe you, you, you can touch on that. Yeah, yeah. But even the fortified Cerciel yeah, is, is dry dry it's always gonna be dry and it's got yeah. that lovely fresh citrusy vibe yeah. and great yeah. with seafood absolutely absolutely I, I think i think what people are surprised by when we go there is um if if you've read up about madeira wine and you go there and you want to go and explore those yeah. wines and you drink the wines that you see in books which were written relatively recently it's very hard to find the wines that you want mm. to drink it's quite hard but partly because very recently, the price of Madeira went through oh, really? the roof. Uh, and that's Ugh. one of... It's down to one of two reasons. First of all, the Americans have discovered it. So that's, they'll buy all the vintage Madeira they mm. can find, no matter what quality mm-hmm. it is. So the prices are going up because touristically, most most of these shops, if you go to the um, the Lavradores, the, the big the big marketplace uh, in the middle of um, Funchal, the capital city of yeah. Madeira, um, there are three or four wine shops. And you go and go, oh my God, they've got all these incredible different vintages of Blandi, Cerciel, Vidalio, whatever. And then you look at the prices, and the prices just make you choke. <laughs> I mean, um, so, so what's happening here is that uh, in order to keep the to keep the Madeira sort of like 
the industry going. Um, there have been some very significant changes, and it's not really that clear in most educational books. Say if you're doing your diploma or if you're doing mm-hmm. uh, your further, your stage three, um, it's hard to find the real truth of, what, of how it is now. Um, so, so I'll tell you how it is. It's um, about 95% of all Madeira is made from Tinta Negra. Ugh, I know. Or what was, used to be called Tinta Negra Mole. Which is not the noble great Yeah, which variety. is not great. Yeah. It's not, it's, and, and it's also, it's red, where the other varieties are all white. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a red variety of moderate quality. They're getting better with it, aren't with they? With modern winemaking, right? 100%, yeah. Janina. I, I think with modern techniques, when I had my um, WSET lecture about this many, many, many years ago, somebody said to me, you can tell it's made from Tinta Negro Mali because it smells of cheese balls. <laughs> you know, like those little football, those, those, you know, it's like those watches that are football oh, shapes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and they, they do smell like watches. There's something quite funky about them. They're not quite, it is a hybrid of sorts, and, and I don't yes. think it, it does very well. But 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 there are, there's one very, very good reason why they plant Tintanegra there, and that is because the vineyard spaces are tiny. They're tiny little terraces. It might be a quarter of an acre here, an eighth of an acre there. So they have to have a vine that will take take very quickly. It has very, very strong roots, which mm. it does. But also, it crops twice a year. What? Oh, I had no idea. So it crops twice a year. They don't talk about that, it crops do twice they, years. in our, yeah, our no, no, they don't. So with very, very tiny amounts of vineyard space, they can make twice as much wine. Wow. If it's Madeira for putting over your chicken livers a la Delia, well, Yeah, use um, the cheap then, stuff. And of course, then, then, Tinta Negra. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. yeah, and it will be a Tinta Negra. So if you use any of the basic, what they call Duke range from Blandy's, those... Those are quite, they're perfectly acceptable drinks. They're nothing special, mm-hmm. but they do have four grades. They have kind of like a pretend surshell for dry, a pretend medium dry, etc. all the way through. <laughs> but they're actually just, just different sweetnesses of Negramol. And um, uh, they're not great. But then you can, the moment you've already got to five years old. So this is, this is like the first sort of real change in flavor when you're making Madeira. Because Madeira, the flavors in the bottle change so incredibly slowly yeah. um but in order for madeira to really be madeira the whole point of madeira is obviously it's made one of two different ways it's either made in a cantero which is a, a loft mm-hmm. um or it's made in a thing called an estofagem and an estofage is just a giant kettle and they warm the wine <laughs> yeah. up it's about 45 degrees yeah. and, and and they warm, warm it up for months and basically they cook the wine out then when they say cook the wine out what they're doing is they're cooking it at the lowest temperature they can get away with but still end up with a, with a drink that when it comes out at the end of the process after so many months is completely 100% shelf stable. Yeah. And the key to Madeira, when people describe, well, what is Madeira like? Why Madeira? Why is it so special about Madeira? Is It doesn't matter how it's made. What separates Madeira from almost any other wine It's indestructible. It is 100% it's indestructible. And I will <laughs> yes. tell you a great story about oh, that. Yeah. Um, my, I had friends who bought a bottle for a very special for for, for the millennium. Mm-hmm. Bought a bottle of Blandy's Buell, eighteen seventy five, and it was a seven hundred and fifty pound bottle of wine then. Oof. It would be considerably more now. Yeah. But they opened the bottle, and they all had a glass. They all said how incredible it was. But this was the end of a gigantic party. Everyone was absolutely mm-hmm. mangled, and they went, "How quick the taxi's arriving to take us skiing." And they were going off to Gestart in Switzerland to go to mm-hmm. So they went, quick, quick, go, go. And they throw all suitcases together, got their salopettes and all their ski boots. And, and then they just raced in the hotel and left the house. I went, oh, barely remembered to lock the house. <laughs> when they came back two weeks later from their special money can't buy posh skiing trip to Gestart, they came back home to find that the bottle of Madeira. They didn't put the lid on? Remember, this is a, a, a Madeira. They didn't mm-hmm. put the lid on. And the, and the Madeira was sitting 
on the Argo. No, oh my God, being well, well, obviously yeah, on the blue, on the Enamel Go. Obviously not. Yeah, on the hot if it was another wine, but, obviously yes, I would really mean the no. But yeah. yeah. So this is 110 years, 110 year old uh, wine. They've been left with the lid off on a warm <laughs> hot plate, basically. When they came back, they said it was almost too hot to touch. They put the stopper in and said, well, that's that screwed. And I said, it's not. I said, you, uh, don't think of throwing it. I said, we're, thinking of, we're, we're going to put it in our gravy. I said, don't. It's going to taste the same. They, went, they couldn't believe me. They said, put it in the fridge, come back to it later and have another taste. And they couldn't believe that after that much of a hammering, that wine still, and they've still got some in the bottle, tastes as good as it did in 2008. Absolutely. And, and it's like, this is the kind of wine you can open up. Months later, it's going to be fine. Even yeah. even years yeah. later. So, yeah. you know, if you... <laughs> I was very lucky. I drank a 1970 Verdelio when I was there with, with Chris Blandy, mm. uh, who's the current eighth generation owner of the oldest um, of Madeira houses. Uh, he's married to this lovely Swedish lady. I'm half Swedish, so we've got to take <laughs> um, And uh, we, we, we'll probably go back out there and on this nice boat and have a holiday sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> he just lives the life. And he's a very charming, extremely wealthy man. Um, and um, uh, he, he, poured, he poured a couple of glasses. He said, I'm very sorry, but I'm going to be late. He left, made a phone call for my interview with him. Um, but uh, I would just make sure that one of the staff come out and pour you a couple of glasses of wine. So this, they came out with two bottles of, you know, with, that, with, the, with the big white stencil on. Mm-hmm. saying one of them just said Tarantes 68. And one said uh, Videlio 70. Yeah. And uh, Tar- Tarantes is a particularly rare. It's hardly any of it and, and it's, growing there. Yeah, and, there's, and, and it's a wine. It's a wine that everyone, everyone's desperate to try. Yeah. It's rare. Uh, it's for, in my mind, it's easily the most boring oh, really? as well. So I don't mind if I don't get. Yeah. Okay. It does have the same same sweetness level of somewhere between. I think it's about the same as a. Well, hang on, hang on, wait, wait. Let's pause this for a second so people actually understand. Yeah. The, okay. The, Oh, yeah, let's start with the Let's go all the way back to the beginning. But we've already mentioned Sergio, which is the dry style. That is what you're going to get dry. The dry dry style. Then you've mentioned Fidello. That's going to be like off dry. Medium dry. Then you've got Buol. And it's spelled sometimes with an B-O-A-L or sometimes B-U-A-L. Do you have a reason? Do do we know why? Absolutely. If you pronounce with a a U in Portuguese, it's pronounced like an O. So... Uh, no, no, so uh, I always pronounce so it. Like might English. be our so the English write Buol. Yeah. Okay. The, the, yeah, so we write we rewrite Buol, B-U-A-L. They write uh, Boal, but it's still pronounced Buol. So whether if it, whether it's an O or not, it's always pronounced Fine. Buol. So Buol, okay. is so, medium sweet. Yeah. And then Malvasia. Yeah, or yeah, Malmsey, exactly. which is the sweetest. So you've got these four different grape varieties, which were which were made into four levels of sweetness. Now, the Sershal still has a fair bit of sugar mm. in it. It's about 20 grams compared to other things. But with all that acidity, it's searing yes. dry in the mouth. And it has so much umami and so much. It makes your mouth sparkle. <laughs> like it's, it's the most tingly, tingly wine. It's just amazing acidity. But it has all this incredible layers of, of kind of, of citrus peel and oxidized notes because the whole point about materials is the wine is intentionally sort of like kicked into the, into the ditch it's, it's I know, cooked the to poor a point wine. where they're off yeah and, and but what's wonderful about this wine is how you have this juxtaposition of it tasting like it's old but also tasting incredibly fresh like it came out of a tap the same day mm. and it's the weirdest thing um and so you have Sershal for dry Vidalia for medium dry, Buell for, for medium sweet, and then Marmsey and Malvasia for super sweet. There are, in fact, other grape varieties. Um, there's Tarantes, which I've just mentioned. Uh, there is a little bit of Muscatel, mm, so okay, straight yeah, Muscat, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but teeny tiny amounts. I think it's half an acre on the whole island, which Blandy's oh my gosh. back in, uh, I think, in, in 18, 1920, I think. But then there's, um, 
another great variety, which is even rarer than Terentes, which I think is very Bastardo? interesting because it's a rather red variety. Bastardo yeah. makes incredible wines. Mm. Bastardo makes not only, I think, fabulous, fabulous table wine, but it also makes incredibly good Madeira, but it, good luck finding one. They're like needles and haystacks. <laughs> but, but also when you look at the, the level of Madeira, you've got lots of different ways to cut it now because the good stuff. If, if you, let's say you buy a bottle of, uh, let's say, 1980 Cercial, from Blandies, uh, let's say conservatively, that's going to be about 270 euros, 250 euros now a bottle, where it was about half that two years mm. ago. So it shows you how where it's, it's a bit like Japanese yeah. whiskey. Yeah, so it's just it's just it's just gone bananas uh, because I think people realise that if you store it, you can store it indefinitely. So it doesn't need special storage conditions. Mm-hmm. You can stick it in your yeah. kitchen; it's not going to go off. So so I think people suddenly realise it's the it's a guaranteed investment. It's like buying gold. <laughs> You know, it will not change. So it's the closest thing you can get, really, in terms of drink, anyway. So so you've got all that. But, but so you have your Tentinegra Merlot drinks, which tend to be very ordinary. Uh, you can have them as a little sort of blast, or you can use them in a cocktail, maybe. Or maybe you can use it to, to, to flash fry your, your, your plate of stir-fried prawns or something. And then um, you've got a five-year-old. You tend to get sort of like these sort of like baby vintage wines, yeah. which are five-year-old expressions, Cercial or Vidalia, which are very nice. But this is where the juxtaposition comes in. What's better value, a five-year-old Modelo or a 20-year-old Tintinegro? Oh. And that's where the grey area yeah. happens, where, where Tintinegro of age suddenly becomes the best value material you can buy at that mm-hmm. price point because the Cercial's only just stopped going through the process of being a, just a table wine, and it's only it's u- uber fresh. Yeah. I think, personally, for my personal taste, I think that... The, Around 20 years old is where Madeira becomes special. Before that, you might as well buy a, buy a five-year-old because there's not much difference between a five-year-old and a ten-year-old. Okay, good advice. But if you buy a 20-year-old or, or a Colletta, a vintage Madeira... And Colletta for everybody is five years plus aged in oak. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. So, so, so uh, for example, the current release, there's a... I think I bought the last bottle for my father-in-law and he, he, he rang me up and almost in tears saying how much he liked it. <laughs> and it was a Cogneta 1999 Malvasia from Blandis. And that's a half litre of a kind of second level. I think it's like second wine. It's not the grand mm-hmm. stuff, but the second thing down. But but it's the first time when you get to see real Madeira in, in, in action. Um, and I got that with Chris Blandis' own family discount in Blandis' own oh wine shop. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it was... And it was still sixty euros for half. Well, year. better than full price. So, so, so these wines are these wines aren't for the faint-hearted, no. but they are things you must try. If you if you love if you love wine, it puts a kind of a I think for, for people that want to understand wine. I think when I started out, one of the things I got most excited about is I didn't know. I knew that I only only knew what five percent of the world's wines tasted like, and ninety-five percent was still left to yeah. explore. But there's a real disorientation and a real sense of well, where do I go from here, or how do I learn? the boundaries of wine if i don't know where the extremes are and this is extreme so yes this is an extreme and this is like if you want to know about whiskey you need to know what isla whiskey tastes like this is the isla whiskey of the wine world it's the most intense most potent i mean we had all those adverts on tv of hinge and bracket next to a, a piano going, and people have this idea that old ladies drank Madeira. <laughs> this is what dockers drink dockers drink it in foot shell this is hardcore yeah. wine it's the same with same with dry sherry. Fortified wine, it's for the cool crowd and it's also for the you know, for the people that mean business. It's it's 
You need to be able to handle your drink to enjoy these drinks. Although you don't, you don't need much of it. You need tiny amounts. No, this is true. And I think what's worth pointing out as well for anybody in terms of flavour profile or for those doing their diploma and they're going to do their fortified yeah. uh, spirits blind tasting, the way to differentiate Madeira always is the acidity, regardless of the sweetness yeah. level, because it could be pretty dry it could be beautifully sweet it's the acidity yeah. it really does what did you say it makes your mouth sparkle <laughs> it's sparkle i mean it, it is it is if, if you if the word searing can be used yeah. to describe acidity in wine and with the exception of madeira i think it's always a criticism yeah. to say it's searing yeah. searing acidity in a reasoning means Maybe a bit too much because <laughs> Riesling shouldn't be searing, but it should be racy and fresh. But it shouldn't be searing. It shouldn't be like biting to a Bramley apple, should it? But Sir <laughs> Shell is like that. Sir Shell makes your eyebrows fall out. <laughs> face it. But then there's this incredible alcohol sweetness yeah. and texture that balances all of it up. And the fact that they're about 20% alcohol, mm -hmm. all that alcohol balances the sweetness of the drink. And I don't think there's anything quite, look, look, there is nothing like Madeira in the world. It is unique as a wine prospect. And I think you need to try them to, first of all, know what the word Madeirized means, because <laughs> that comes up a lot in the wine. And it comes from... You get people saying this wine's Madeirized. They go, and it comes from, it tastes like Madeira. So, well, isn't that a good thing, right? No, not necessarily. Um, so, so, so it's important for, for wine students to have taste of Madeira and not, don't go and buy a bottle of Duke of Clarence, Tinta Negramol, and go, oh, that's not very nice, and then put it in your gravy. That's not enough. You, this is a, a worthwhile, go, maybe go to a wine bar. There's a few wine bars in London, like the Remedy and places like that, where you can go in, and often they have five or six different Madeiras mm. in there. And then you get a chance between two or three of you. Two or three of you can buy a glass between you. And that's more than enough. And you could be sitting there, for, I'll tell you, you'll be there for half an hour enjoying it. One glass between three of you. Because it's just so flavour explosive. You need a pipetful. And if you're lucky enough to find a frasquera, that means, yes. exactly, that, I knew you'd get excited. That is from one year, yeah, yeah. it's one grape, and it has to be aged for at least 20 years. And as you have already said, that's yeah. when you get excited. 20 yeah. years is the excitement point. And you can, and if you, if you go to any shop and you don't know where the Madeira is, if you look up, if there's a label that has nothing on it except for stenciled Sershal or Buell on it and a number, that's a Frescara. That is the mm. best of the best. Those are proper, properly aged, old school Madeiras. And there are, I think they still have 750 litres of 1811 Frascara Buell at Blandis, which I haven't bought. Yeah, because ah, basically most bottles, most Madeira is now in 50 CL bottles, isn't it? When do yeah. they change? It is. I, interesting. I think they realise that, I think as the price leveraged up, <laughs> what tends to happen, this also happened with Amarone yes. uh, when I was buying wine for a supermarket. What, what happened was that when the price goes above like £10 or £20, when it hits a hard price point, they go, well, if we put it in a 50 CL, it comes up back below that price <laughs> so the sales go back up again people are a bit thick that way sadly <laughs> but what happens is if you buy a madeira if you buy an amaroni and you've got a choice between a 50 cl for 17 pounds mm. or a 70 cl for 22 pounds the smaller bottle will outsell the bigger bottle five yeah. to one yep 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 or even though it's exactly the same price per, per liquid yeah. but well listen if it allows us to be able to try so everyone go and try the frasquera if you absolutely can. And remember, Madeira wine just gets better with age. I think that's a pretty good conclusion. It really yeah. is.
it's just incredible stuff. And, and also, just going back to the tourism of the island, the food is extraordinary. It's a bit unique. But they also have an amazing love for music. They have festivals all the time. And the the locals, they have these kind of like scat rap battles where at the local fe- um, like fiestas during the year, um, people will chase a man, an old man, an old woman up the streets, and they will be taking turns to come up with verses, trying to diss each other, and the person <laughs> that wins is the one that has the best diss. It, it's, it is absolutely a rap battle for old, for old Portuguese jazz wow. lovers, and it's really fantastic. And th- th- that was something that just blew me away. I just, I was, it was so intoxicating watching these people passionately coming up with really clever disses for each other, even when they were in their 70s with like a, like a sort of hair mask on. Or a, and it was bizarre. And, and there's um, so many wonderful things about the island it's hard to know where to start the one thing I would say is it's full of really amazing drinks wine is just mm. the beginning they've got 20 kind of unique drinks the drink that everyone drinks like the fisherman's drink is called ponche okay. and ponche is made from an rum agricole which is made on the island they have four or five distilleries on the island two of them are some of the finest agricole distilleries that is a, a rum made from the juice not from molasses they probably rate the top 20 distilleries in the world for the quality Intriguing. of the rum that they make uh, and the, the rums are amazing. So, but what you go is you go into a bar, you'll go ponche fresa, and what they do is they just put rum into a glass, they put mineral water into a glass, and then they put in a whole handful of fresh strawberries because they're, they're fresh oh, all year yeah. round. And they, they and they and they just beat it up into a glass and then pass it to you. Now, if you're hardcore, you don't put ice <laughs> on a hot day, but it's it's, it's, it's just fresh fruit, rum, and water. Lovely. It's either usually made if it's made traditionally, it's pescadera. It's just made with lemons, mm. so it's lemon, rum, and cane sugar. Um, but traditionally, the ones that people drink are tangerine or oh, orange yummy. or strawberry. And they make that a passion fruit. They make that all sorts of things. But you go to a poncho bar, that's all they do. They're, all they're doing is smashing fresh fruit and jugs and giving them to you. That in its own right, it's such a lovely thing to have, which juxtaposes that whole culture of, of Madeira and wine as well. So, But of course, don't forget, it is a part of Portugal. And when you're there, you've got the whole gamut of Portuguese wines in most restaurants. Mm. They've got wines from Alentejo, from Val, from uh, Vigneville. They've got them from everywhere. I'm, I'm going when I get the opportunity. I have to. It will. Oh, you've got to. You've got to. And to look at it, it's just the colours that just blow your mind. So next week, we continue with Joe as he takes us on a tour of Portugal. We are going to the mainland and we're going to be looking further into two of the regions. So Vino Verde and Berrada. And of course, it shall all be told with the typical Joe style. So lots of interesting stories on the way. Right, as always, no changes for this season. I leave you with a wine quote. And seeing as I feel that Joe was rather poetic with many of his words and descriptions, I've picked one from an English writer and poet novelist, D.H. Lawrence. And he said, If we sip the wine, we find the dreams coming upon us out of the imminent night. So keep sipping that wine of yours. I wish you all beautiful dreams. And in the meantime, take a screenshot of this podcast and share it across your social media platforms. Make sure you've liked the podcast and you've subscribed if you haven't already. And of course, it makes the podcast so much more discoverable if you were to leave some stars and a comment, especially on Apple Podcasts. So do it now, please. I'll be very, very grateful right we all know we're back to portugal next week so i raise my glass to you until then cheers to you